very own TARDIS, where today I'll be discussing my own earliest memories of television, having a chat with one of the authors of a few of those incredibly useful guidebooks to television serials, and generally sharing a few of the sorts of things we hope to be doing here on Vision on Sound to give you an idea of what we're all about. So let's crank up those time engines and see just where we end up. seem to have landed on the streets of San Francisco in 1972, a series which, like many in the 60s and 70s, might not have been the greatest show ever made, but what incredible theme tunes they had. That theme was written by Patrick Williams, who also wrote music for Columbo, Lou Grant, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, and The Bob Newhart Show. The Streets of San Francisco lasted for five series and 121 episodes and featured famously bulbous-nosed Oscar-winning movie star Carl Malden as Mike Stone. They always had such granity names, the TV cops of that era. And future movie superstar Michael Douglas as Steve Keller, who was replaced by Richard Hatch as Dan Robbins for the final series. This wasn't too bad for Richard Hatch. He'd go on to star in another iconic TV series the following year, Battlestar Galactica. But that, as they say, is another story for another week. It could be said that the beautiful, gleaming, lively and vibrant city of San Francisco is the real star of the series, adding an exotic touch for the viewers at home, at least in 1970s Britain, of an exciting, faraway place few of us would have imagined ever visiting back then. Well, maybe the weekly tales of murder and mayhem might not have seemed quite so tempting, but the city does look gorgeous, at least in that slickly edited iconic opening sequence. Sadly, recently it's been a city that's been suffering from the effects of the wildfires burning along the west coast of the United States, and so they remain much in our thoughts today. Anyway, moving on, back in Manchester. I'm all alone in this uh, TARDIS today. I thought I might explain a little bit, a little bit about that uh, Adventures in 20th Century Television tagline, which I very quickly realised made it sound as if I didn't really want anything to do with the modern stuff. <laughs> Whilst that might not be completely untrue, I guess I should explain myself. We're calling the show Vision on Sound because we're going to be talking about television in an audio medium. And we're hoping we will become a regular part of your schedules if you happen to be a fan of or just someone who enjoys a bit of 
classical golden age TV, whatever that is. The 20th century thing is simply shorthand to let you know that we're, we're delving a little more deeply into television shows that aren't necessarily quite as current as some other programmes might do. If one of the great shows of the last 20 years does happen to crop up in conversation, we're not going to say no, but we might try to look a little bit at the roots of how it came to be, you know, whether certain actors or directors or writers worked on other things before they came to make this show or that show, what the influences and roots that made that show happen might have been. For example, I've been watching an American science fiction show called Fringe recently, which is most definitely 21st century television. It was made between 2008 and 2013, if you want to start feeling a bit old. Fringe slots neatly alongside those other high-concept shows like Lost and Heroes that were cluttering up our airways about a decade ago. But those shows built on the popularity of shows like The X-Files and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which were the shows that were plastered all over the covers of our television magazines in the 1990s. Although they might be said to owe a lot to shows like The Omega Factor back in the 70s, or even Department S in the 60s. And so it goes, and so it goes. Fringe might even be said to have a little bit of CSI thrown into its mix. And CSI builds on all sorts of other procedural shows like Quincy M.E. that preceded it. And Quincy... Well, you, you, you get the drift. We're making a few connections. We're joining a few dots between the programmes that might have been stepping stones to becoming other shows that you know and love today. You are entering a realm between image and noise, between video and audio, between sight and listening. A magical realm of imagination, investigation, discovery and kindness, where television of the past becomes the conversation of the present. Congratulations, you've just stepped into Vision on Sound on Fab Radio International. You can contact the program via email on vos at fabradiointernational.com or at Vision on Sound 1 in Twitworld. Embrace the alternative. Television's become this huge monster these days, so it's sometimes easy to forget that there was a time before multi-channel, satellite TV, streaming, a time before Blu-ray, DVD, VHS, when, if you were lucky, when you had four or three or two or one channel to choose from, and the programmes you saw or did not see might dance across your TV screen just one time before possibly disappearing forever, never to be seen again. Nowadays, the avid televiewer can, if the uh, show still exists and you have the appropriate platform, see pretty much anything you want to at any time. And for the likes of us, <laughs> that's a really good thing. If you want to, you can watch IMAX quality images on a device that fits in the palm of your hand. Granted, that's kind of peculiar, but if you want to, that's what you can do. But this mighty, complicated, all-consuming, all-consumer television world is kind of shattered, splintered. We're rarely all watching the same things at the same times. The days when the nation would pretty much all sit down together. Well, not together, but together. You know what I mean. Anyway, all sit down together and watch two Northern comedians bewitchers at Christmas are unlikely to happen again. Television companies might obsess about ratings and viewing figures, but really those things have changed forever. Entire series of a new show can drop, as the kids might have it, in an afternoon and be devoured before bedtime, and then you have to wait impatiently for some more episodes to turn up or end up having to protest about another swift cancellation of something you've grown to love. Oh, God, series that end on never-to-be-resolved cliffhangers. There's a topic for one week. The days when we could all agree that X or Y was the greatest sitcom ever, the jury remains still out on that one, by the way, are long gone. After all, great art and poetry and literature and music can be fondly deconstructed and get analysed in highfalutin arts programmes all the time, so why not telly? And, and, and what we're really hoping is this will become 
a cosy little place where we can get together and talk about television. So, so, so why me? Why am I doing this? I'm no expert, but nobody can know everything. I certainly can't. I only have to open up a magazine or pop into an archive TV chat room to find there's something else I've never heard of. But that's what we're here for to open up this fascinating, astonishing, almost boundless world that is television, sometimes television that everyone else has all but forgotten about or, or never even seen. I'm definitely more of an enthusiast than an expert, but I'm hoping that the enthusiasm is contagious and that perhaps the people who are experts will want to join us. There's lots of space in our tiny TARDIS and we'd love to meet you. Occasionally there might be a loose theme of the week behind each episode, but that's not something we're completely wedded to. After all, if an interesting tangent or thread comes to mind, we're probably just going to follow that as it unravels. That's the kind of folk we are. Anyway, I hope that explains a little bit about what we're trying to do here at uh, Vision on Sound, and I hope you'll find it interesting enough to want to travel right along with us, even if it's only to remind me that I, I know nothing about anything. One of the things I'm hoping to do uh, as we go on in the following weeks is I really want to uh, talk to people about their earliest memories of television. I mean, I'm going to interview experts and everything like that, and hopefully people who know a lot more about certain subjects will come on and talk to me. But the other thing I want to do is talk to people about what their memories are of growing up with television, you know, what, what made them ha have an interest in television in the first place, what they remember watching as very small children, what they played in the playground, uh, all that kind of thing, what they watched with the parents, what they watched as a family. So because <laughs> I am here alone, uh, I'm going to kind of ask myself those questions. I might go on a bit, and I apologise for that, but basically I'm going to just talk about the things that I remember from growing up as a kid and hopefully that'll give you an idea and if you sort of feel oh, I, I, i've got some i've got some memories i've got some uh, interesting points i've got some things i remember all those things we will put them to people we'll, we'll get people to come in and we'll talk to them about that but for the moment it's just me so let me tell you about my television memories I'm definitely young enough to know that I think we had a TV set when I was born. You know, some people, they remember the television arriving and it's a big deal. Uh, but I'm pretty sure we always had one. Now, I might be wrong, but that's how I remember it. I was born in the latter half of the uh, first half of the 1960s, if you were wondering. But uh, tragically, perhaps, I have very few televisual memories of much before the age of six. Were we early adopters? Oh, I'm not sure. I don't think so. I think by then pretty much everybody had them. Some old photographs of my grandparents, well, of my grandparents' house, that have my sister in, have a TV set in the background, and they must have been taken in the 50s, so maybe they were the early adopters. But um, one of the things I do remember, I do remember very clearly, is being parked on a knee late at night for the moon landing. But even that, you know, I mean, that might be a false memory too. I mean, I, I vividly remember sort of my dad sitting me there. He's like, this is history and all this kind of thing. And maybe it was and, and so on and so on and so on. But that's probably my clearest, earliest memory. My sister, my sister liked cowboys. She, uh, she, the Virginian was on a lot when I was a kid. Um, I, I think it was, I think it was the horses, probably, mostly. 
or maybe it was James Drury or, or Trampus. Doug McClure was Trampus. But um, whichever one of those it was, she was a big fan of the old cowboys. She also liked Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. So I, I, I think one of the reasons I like submarine films now to this day is because my sister bought me up on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I, I know she had a thing about uh, David Hedison, uh, as a lot of people of her generation did. Uh, uh, David Hedison appeared as uh, Captain Crane in uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea alongside Richard Basehart. Uh, and she also had a uh, I Rave for Dave badge, which is kind of kind of weird, but I think that was something to do with the monkeys. I think, I think she liked Davy Jones, or maybe she just liked people called Dave. And I do have very strong memories of lying on the floor with my head resting in my hands, elbows on the floor, you know, in, on the rug, watching all sorts of stuff at a distance. It was far too close in that sort of Charlie Brown way that you sometimes see in the cartoons. It was very, 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 very much part of our lives. I mean, the whole family, we had one TV. We, 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 we sat in the living room and we watched television together as a family. There were certain shows that I was allowed to stay up for. Perhaps weirdly now, uh, is I got really quite keen on a man called Ironside, as we knew it. Uh, I think it's just Ironside across the pond, but uh, we seem to call it a man called Ironside over here, and that was one of those shows that I was allowed to stay up. Also, later on, I was allowed to stay up to watch That's Life. I think a slightly different generation thing, but That's Life was something I was allowed to see. I also remember really, really liking a show called Randall and Hopkirk. Um, Randall Hopkirk Deceased, which was about a detective and, and his ghost partner. That was kind of one of those shows that when it came back, donkeys years later, they were going to show it again. I was so excited because I, I remembered this great show from when I was a kid and I was going to watch it again and again and again. I was going to be fabulous. I was going to love it. And, I was, and uh, yeah, I still actually do. To be fair, it's one of those shows I enjoy. I got the, the DVD set years ago and it's, I wasn't massively keen on the remake, but uh, the original, you know. Because my sister was a bit older than me, she was about nine years older than me, so she was buying records and stuff, and she she bought the record of Eye Level, the um, the Vandervelk theme, which was kind of fabulous, made a massive hit. You know, the, I think was it the what's it the there was a beer, wasn't it? There? there was a beer that uh, used the Vandervelk theme more. Anyway, uh, and on the B side of that, coincidentally, because this was by the Simon Park Orchestra, the theme tune from uh, Crown Court was on. Now, there we go. Crown Court. That was one of those programmes you did watch when you were my age because it was on in the daytime during the school holidays. Now, that mention uh, of Crown Court takes me back to the summer holidays when I was younger. And uh, for various reasons, I spent many daytimes alone in my own company. <laughs> the nature of the times back then, you, you kind of did. My, my both parents both worked. I, had a, I was a latchkey kid, I was, from about the age of eight. I would uh, basically let myself in from school, but also in the school holidays, I would basically sit in the house quite often on my own, and um, the, 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 the telly became my pal, you know. And But, you know, lunchtime would be filled. I would go, I would get sent off to various people's houses to have my lunch by my mother, you know. But... Uh, um, <laughs> it's a very strange childhood I had, but uh, we would. Uh, I, I would. I would get quite annoyed. I was. I was going to miss. I was going to miss um, Crown Court. I'd, I'd, I'd miss part three, or, or I'd miss the middle bit of a, of a three three day Crown. That'd be on at lunchtime of Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or whichever days it was. And of course, the other thing is that, 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 that you would get really quite involved in these these stories. You know, it was kind of peculiar. You know that, that you would actually sort of. <laughs> 
I mean, yeah. I was 10. Nevertheless, you know, but uh, the, afternoon, the afternoons were brilliant. They were brilliant. I mean, paint along with Nancy. Nancy. Nancy Kaminsky. Nansky, yes. Nancy Kaminsky, who was, uh, she'd just, pe- she'd do these uh, still lives. She'd do these oil paints and she'd sort of grid everything off and put charcoal and then paint, I don't know, a, a vase or a, or a bunch of flowers or something in, in half an hour, you know. And there was that other strange and peculiar thing, the amazing world of Kreskin, you know, which is just kind of bonkers. It's, uh, it was this sort of, ooh, mystic, wasn't it? It was, uh, yeah, yeah, that was kind of strange. Although I don't know, I don't know what became of Kreskin. But uh, he was a big part of my afternoons, you know, it was, uh, that was kind of thing. And, and even, even, you know, other, other sort of strange shows like uh, Looks Familiar, you know, with uh, Dennis Norton, and, you know, which, which again would start to interest me in old films and things. And of course the old films would be on as well. But the Sullivan's family, or all these things sort of turned up at lunchtime. Afternoon dramas were on. Uh, ITV tended to show shows like, like uh, Callan or Public Eye, I think Public Eye was repeated in the afternoons. But those sort of shows were on in the afternoon, and uh, I mean, I, I know we watched Callan because uh, I think my mum had a bit of a thing about Edward Woodward. So um, yeah. <laughs> now, when the Christmas holidays came about, I used to go and stay with my godparents. Yes, I had those who were in far away Wilmslow. Yes, it's dead posh in Wilmslow. But uh, so I would go and stay with these friends for the sort of run up to Christmas. But uh, we also went to a news agent while I was there, staying there once, and, and found ourselves a copy of an excellent magazine called TV Sci-Fi Monthly, TV Sky-Fi Monthly, as I used to call it then, because that's what I was. And we picked up this copy, and it was—I don't remember—it was a big, big sort of broadsheet thing that folded out uh, about sixteen pages. Uh, I think there were only ever about eight editions. But I think actually finding that magazine might be the moment that I switched from wanting to find out more about the programmes instead of just watching. And, of course, in those mornings we would watch uh, White Horses, Robinson Crusoe, we heard earlier, The Flashing Blade, with all that bizarre dubbing. It, uh, just about anything they would put on for us, we, we really weren't fussy. You know, we'd even watch Why Don't You? And uh, as well as all those um, Universal series they would run every morning, you know, Flash Gordon, Flash Gordon's Trip to Mars, Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe, Buck Rogers... And of course, we 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 would mock, we would mock the this these special effects in it. And then and then you do begin to wonder, you know, these uh, rockets with the what are they called? Sparklers, that's it. Sparkler rockets at the uh, up the back of them, uh, you know, and, and the clouds and everything. Of course, this is what they thought outer space might look like back then. But uh, you do wonder how how convinced the uh, the children of the 1930s really found that. You know, I, I, you wonder actually whether it just felt as real as some of the effects we were watching felt real. And of course people now mock the effects of the 70s. And, and yet, yeah, we were convinced. You know, we were genuinely convinced by that stuff in, in those days. So, you know, who knows? I, I think maybe the 30s kids were, were convinced by, by Flash Gordon, you know. So, you know, maybe we were wrong We were wrong to mock it. We were wrong to mock it. And there was also something called Holiday Star Trek, which was basically Star Trek, but on in the morning, you know, but they called it Holiday Star Trek, and for years, for years, I, I thought of Star Trek was a thing that... Uh, there was also these special ones called Holiday Star Trek. That's kind of weird, you know. Because uh, the thing, the thing about Star Trek is it was, it was on in the evenings as well. It was on in uh, prime time as well, was it? About 7 o'clock in the evening. You know, you, you can't, can't really imagine now. Just before sort of old family favourites like Je Sans Frontier, we used to watch. 
Yeah, so if, if your mum was standing on the doorstep going, it's time for Star Trek! You know, all the kids would come running in and sort of <laughs> from playing outside and because Star Trek was cool. It was really cool. It was a time when, when Star Trek was cool. If you come to the, uh, thinking about when you're a kid, you know, we would play. We would play the programmes, you know. We can I remember the, um, the shelter in our school uh, playground. And we so we would do that running to the left and running to the right that like they used to do on Voice to the Bottom of the Sea. And, uh, and we'd sort of six million dollar man running very slowly, you know. Things that got me into into television, into being a fan of, was was uh, recording theme tunes uh, with my tape recorder. Yeah, weird things like like. Uh, like the thing from Horses Galore and stuff like that. And, and the books were the things as well. Clive James's reviews for The Observer that they republished in Visions Before Midnight was just hilarious. It, it made you realise that you could actually make a living talking about television in an interesting and amusing way. He was, he was, he was brilliant. He had two follow-ups, Crystal Bucket glued to the box, you know. And around about that time as well, there was the um, ITV Quatermass came on and they, they reprinted the scripts to the 1960s serials. So, uh, so that sort of got me interested more in, in the history of television as well. And then, of course, there were magazines like Primetime, uh, Starburst, Starlog, TV Zone. And, of course, these days there are loads of brilliant reference books about television, but back then uh, there weren't that many uh, knocking about, so I'd pounce on a new one if I found one. There was this tiny little bookshop across the road from Stockport Library where I bought loads of reference stuff, and uh, I must have made a fortune out of me. Shows you remember watching? Ironside, all that, obviously, I mentioned earlier, but the new Avengers, I remember the new Avengers starting. The old Avengers seemed like, you know, it's only seven years, but it seemed like forever ago. I mean, it was obviously most, half of my lifetime ago at that point, you know, but uh, it seemed like forever. I remember being desperate for bonfire night. My dad had bought these fireworks to set off, and I don't know, I was so, so, so ungrateful <laughs> because I wanted to watch Last of the Cybernauts that was on that night. There were shows we watched as a family. We had pretty much everything we watched as a family. We had the one TV, but I do specifically remember Christmas Morgan Wise. Uh, I think everybody remembers the Christmas Morgan Wise who was there for it. Uh, the Magic Roundabout, Rhubarb, Paddington. You know, all those things that came on before the news. The news. With, I mean, my dad always watched the news, so we all watched the news. Robert Dougal, you know, all that kind of thing. The news flashing across the screen. Bert Ford reading the weather with his magnetic weather symbols. Oh, Dixon of Doc Green as well. Evening all, yeah. Now, my dad used to send me out of the way whenever there were scary bits in a, in a programme. You know, he would, he would literally send me out in the hallway. It was, it was too scary for me to see. So, OK, fair enough. Um, I, I'll, I'll probably come back to that another day. I, I, I watched Top of the Pops, of course. You know, my sister was a big fan of Starsky and Hutch. Uh, I think my mother was as well. Uh, good judging by the LP she bought of uh, David Soul. We watched things like Kojak. But I, I, and I remember all those children's shows. I was a sponge, you know. I say all the ones I watched. I mean, I didn't see them all, but, you know, strange ITV shows with Mel Smith and Bob Goody. Strange Thames television things with Pauline's quirks and You Must Be Joking and the fact that they made Mike Holloway and, and Flintlock into pop stars and, and The Tomorrow People and all that kind of thing. But all sorts of series. Uh, Man Dog, Rocky O'Rourke, The Changes, Children of the Stones, Owl Service, Folly Foot, Adventures of Black Beauty, Horses Go... We seem to have an obsession with horses, you know. Although those Hanna-Barbera cartoons, Hong Kong Fooey, Speed Buggy, Inch High, Private Eye, Wacky Races, Superhero Tyrone, Hair Bear Bunch, Scooby-Doo, Pink Panther Show, Tom and Jerry cartoons would pop up everywhere. I'd even, I'd even watch, I'd even watch Emu's Broadcasting Company. And I've got a question for those of you out there. My first experience of the I, Claudius music, I'm convinced I first heard it on Emu's Broadcasting Company. So if any of you can absolutely confirm that for me, that would be great. <laughs> 
as you do. I just, I can't actually find proof of it anywhere. For years I'd watched lunchtime children's telly when I was far too old for it, really. And I remember when Pipkins was just Inigo Pipkin. I remember Jamie and the Magic Torch, we had a song. Chalton and the Wheelies, we had a song, you know, The Mall, Crystal Tips and Alice. I was still watching Rainbow when I was far too old for it. But there you go. Now, I think we'll move on. I've done an interview, if we, because we were talking about all those... Uh, informational guidebooks and it reminds me that I interviewed Andy Priestner earlier on this week about the books and DVD viewing notes that he's worked on and he's written epic volumes on the BBC's Secret Army and Tenko series as well as well as co-writing with Rich Cross The End of the World which is the definitive unauthorised guide to Terry Nation's survivors. So um, several of those extensive viewing notes that accompany many of the DVD box sets you may own were also written by him. Anyway, I caught up with him this week to ask about how all this came about. Hello, Andy. Hello. So I've got this huge pile of books and DVD box sets sitting next to me that you've been involved with to a lesser or greater extent. Yeah. Now, I was wondering, which, which, which of those came first? Do we talk about the DVDs first or do we talk about the books first? Um, definitely the DVDs. It all started in early 2003. Right. When I got an email at work saying, you're a bit of a survivor's nut, aren't you? Um, we're going to release this as a DVD and maybe you could be involved I was like, whoa, what? So just to give you a bit of background, I'd started the Survivor's website. Right. Um, because I wanted to test how to do a website. That's how long ago it is. <laughs> no, <laughs> right. I, just thought, I just thought it was a bit random there, just to, to get this message from the ether. Oh, you, you know about Survivor. Yeah, I exactly. you about it on the bus exactly. three years ago. It's because right. I had a website. Um, so, it was, so it was a bit more... You were actually out there as a Survivor's fan. Yes, or, but only very right. recently. It, uh, I, I just put myself out there. But, uh, I don't know, maybe about six months earlier... And was sort of charting survivors with images and and stuff like you do on any old website, and it mm-hmm. caught the attention of this guy who was kind of the producer, the um, curator for um, all the DVD releases from DD Video back in the day. A guy called Colin. Okay. And um, what I had I thought, oh, he, he'll he'll be cheap. <laughs> well, I think that was that was it. But um, yes. but in fact, it was it was more money than I thought it was going to be. Because uh, I think they knew that everyone talked. So a guy who was doing release, the only other guy who was doing releases at the same time for this company was Marcus Hearn, who of right. course is the editor of Doctor Who magazine now. And um, oh. yeah, I, I feel we're on the same money. Because <laughs> 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 we would have talked to each other. Right. But um, yeah, but I hadn't realised what they meant. They didn't When they said help with the DVD release, that very quickly, in very short order, turned into... Um, producing a studio day, writing right. all the VAM, writing a booklet, writing the cover, even down to authoring of chapters. I wasn't doing the technical authoring, but I was just every single chapter point I was naming for the series. Oh, right. Crikey. I know. And then they were like, oh, right, and we want a studio day that we want you to, we want you to get all the actors. Oh, wow. So then I had to hire all the actors as well. Having no- oh, you, you had to do the hiring? Yes. Oh, right. And I had that, no that, knowledge. That, that's, a, that's a career shift. <laughs> Slightly. <laughs> this is while having a full-time wow. job uh, yes. for the University in Oxford. And um, 
that was just bizarre because I didn't know anything about deals. I had to set up this no. favoured nations deal, oh, right? Which which is a deal that makes sure that everyone who comes on board gets the same amount, regardless of how important they are. Okay. So that in the end, Carolyn, Ian, and Lucy all got the same fee, f- even though you know, right? Yeah. All of this stuff. It was. And okay. agents are horrible. If you don't know this, actors' agents <laughs> are just nasty, and they just all think that their their person is more important. And oh my right. lord! Anyway, yes. So, so so that that got published, and that was what three volumes. Yes, but at the same right. time, because they saw I did a good job on the Survivors' first release, they very quickly got me on board to do Secret Army as well, which they also had rights to. Oh right, so so you didn't you that that was another one that they had lined yeah. up, and you just. And, and they thought, do you know anything about this one? Yeah, exactly. And it's like, oh, yes, even more. That's my that's my right. one that I love and adore. So right. concurrently, so I was working on Survivors 1 and then Secret Army 1, Survivors 2, Secret Army 2. So it went like that for, wow. for 18 months to two years. And I don't believe I did a proper day's work at, at the university at <laughs> that time. Oh. And see, that's the kind of thing now, because we're now into this, the complete sets that, that come out yes. nowadays. You forget that, that things actually came out sort of one at a time. Yeah. And, oh, you know, about a year, would it be about a year apart? Um, I think it was more like six months, I think. Right. Yeah, because I was... So people had to have to wait on those cliffhangers, and, and even then, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the yeah, early yeah. days of DVD. Yeah, wild. Hmm. Okay. So, so, you, uh, so you worked on uh, Survivors and then you worked on Secret Army. Did you do any did you, any other uh, DVD box set? Yeah. Um, after Secret Army and Survivors, I did the 1972 War and Peace. Wow. Yeah, and Fall of Eagles, which is another big costume drama from the 70s. Um, so you've now actually got a bit of a reputation. This has become your thing. You've, you've become the go-to guy. But only for this company. I didn't get any work right. from any other companies. Um, <laughs> because... <laughs> You know, I don't know. I think a lot of... There weren't many people doing this sort of work. So right, no, I suppose, like Network yeah. would be another one, and they all seem to do it all in-house. And I mean, there's a lot of DVDs out there where, where there's literally no information, isn't there? So so it's kind of interesting that, that this was seen as a priority for that particular company. Yeah. I should say that the special features were the interviews on virtually all the sets are awful. <laughs> 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 and that's because... They wanted me to be on camera, and I'd never been on camera before. And right. I started refusing. After, after the first release, mm. I refused, because I just thought, I'd, no one wants to see me interview them. They just want to see the actors. But yeah. it was a while before I was confident enough to say, look, I can't do that. It's not what mm. I'm here for. I'm not a TV presenter. Mm. But the video technique changes over time as well. I mean, the, yeah. the, the form of just the talking head yeah. is, is a bit later, isn't it? I, mean, I think even then, sort of extras, I suppose, were kind of a, a bit of a new a new area mm-hmm. for people. They hadn't actually sort of gone there before. And the other problem is I just looked ridiculously excited. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was meeting, well, I suppose that's, I was meeting that's, my that's, heroes. That's natural. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, precisely, you know. I mean, if, if I, I was sat here and, and somebody who, who I'd absolutely worshipped for 20 years sort of walked through the door, I might be able to just sit in here going, eh. <laughs> so, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. yeah. I, on the Survivor's Wild. release, there was a, there was a review in um, one of the Ultimate DVD or whatever the magazines were at the time saying, unfortunately, it looks like the interviewer wants to run away with the cast and, and set it <laughs> home with them in the woods. And they were dead right. <laughs> oh, and, and, that, and that's a bad review, is it? <laughs> 
sounds perfectly reasonable. I feel there should be a big, a big house full of nice telly people somewhere that everyone should be in. That's brilliant. So, so um, you've you've sort of done this. You've become the go-to guy at least for, for this particular company. Yeah. I mean, uh, do you get sort of negative feedback, or do you get? Do I mean, do, are people? You know, do you get sort of people going, "Oh, well, you got that wrong," or is it? Is it? No, have, it, you, have it, you actually? It was more that I was always pushing to make the things better, and I think they got a bit fed up of my perfectionism. Better and perfect. Because any TV fan wants things to be perfect, and indeed, the things that were were got wrong used to just drive me drive me mad. So, what was what was the last one you did? The last set I did all of Wish Me Luck again, series by series, wow. and at the end of Wish okay. Me Luck three, I um, had a sense that it was the end, and. Yeah, I think shortly afterwards the company changed into another company, and I think it's now simply, but but back in the day it had right. various iterations, and I, I I could just smell that it was yes. the end, and I was desperately sad about that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's 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 in some ways for a t- sort of TV fan, it, it's a bit of a dream job, really, totally. isn't it? You know, when all said and done for three know. years, yeah. Yeah, fabulous. And so you, but then you moved into the literary world to a certain extent. Yeah, I just had so much material, particularly on Survivors and Secret Army from the actors. And I thought, there's enough for a book here. But I don't think I'd realise how hard a book is to write or how long they are. (laughs) Well, these ones particularly, they are are quite hefty numbers. What's the 746 pages in the Tenko one? (laughs) Well, Paul Paul Grady on the radio, I sent him a copy because I knew he was a Tenko fan, and he described it as a telephone directory. (laughs) A telephone directory had arrived (laughs) at his house. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, but you actually sort of feel that you know if you if you have, have any interest at all in in archive television, you feel that you need a book like this for just about every series there's ever been. Yeah, it's amazing how many people tell you that you know oh you can't find out anything about this show or that show, and then and then then like you say, well these phone books of about Tenko and Secret Army turn up. Yeah, I was just determined to write the definitive work on each of those three series. Right. Um, so, d- did you? I mean, were you commissioned, or was this a no, no, a personal project? Um, so, very much ourselves. We set up our own publishing house, Classic TV Press. But that was right. because, actually, to be fair, there's, there's another part of the story, which is um, mm-hmm. uh, it was on the Survivors um, DVDs, the slimmer volume. Yes. Oh, the oh, the, oh, the book. Yeah, oh, the, the, Survivor, the, DVD. the Survivors book, The End of the World, which I wrote with right. my mate Rich Cross, right. and mm-hmm. that was actually commissioned by Telos. And yes, that was an unhappy experience. <laughs> okay. we, shall, we, shall we not dwell? <laughs> no, no, it was, it, was, it was okay, just that um, I think as writers we kind of didn't see eye to eye, but also, mm. um, so in the end we initial the bits that we'd written in the book, mm. you can see. <laughs> oh, right. Okay, crikey. Yeah. One of those. Yeah, <laughs> but I suppose at least it gave you the experience of, of putting the book yeah. together. But also the, 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 the publisher... Um, was very much they didn't really I don't think they really cared about the quality that much and it was tiny writing and it was just mm. it wasn't there were so many things more we wanted to put in that they wouldn't let us so it was right. kind of um or awkward all round yeah but you you um you put this together yeah I mean to be fair I I I ordered this uh, independently when I was watching uh, Survivors a few years ago oh, yeah. and it's absolutely it's absolutely great. I'm that kind of person who, who I watch an episode that I really want to find out something else about it, you know. Yeah. Hence the sort of house full of magazines and all this kind of thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes, I get frowned out about that. But uh, but no, it, it's 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 a good little number. But uh, so this led to you thinking, oh, I could do that, and I could do that for presumably Secret Army first, was it? Yeah, Secret Army in 2008. Right. And then um, wow. And Tenko in 2012. 
Wow. Yeah. So how, so they don't, it actually took four years to do? Or? Yeah, but, um, yeah, Secret Army less so because I had material already from the actors from having right. done the DVDs and had relationships, but Tenko was wow. literally from scratch with trying to beg Lavinia Warner, the creator on the phone, to give me the chance to do it. And I wanted that permission first before I started because I knew if she said she was on board with the project, then I could get all the actors on board too. Mm-hmm. And also, if you've already got one book to wave under the noses and yeah. say, look, we've done this yeah, yeah. and we've been respectful and we've... Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. So, so you, you're writing Secret Army. Yeah. You've written Secret Army. So what, what happened next? Yeah, it sold pretty well. And in fact, of right. all the books that I've written, that one still sells. So we've still got boxes right. in the garage. <laughs> it's one of those shows that people keep rediscovering isn't yeah. it they, they sort of they, they sort of i mean they, i i noticed the sort of chat on on twitter about it and you can occasionally cough oh, got a book you know <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> it's always handy yeah so yeah but i think this is a wonderful thing isn't it because it's it should it's what 40 years old now yeah give or take yeah and yet people still keep rediscovering it and and the ones who don't make the uh the lolo sort of connection <laughs> Yeah, they they sort of they sort of come to it and and they're and they're, and they're quite forgiving. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a good show. You, so you, you've kept in touch. You made actually good friendships through through writing the book. No one's gone away and gone. I never want to talk, talk to that guy again. Or yeah, um, um, I did make some good friendships, and there's some people you just click with. But at yeah. the same time, I think you have a responsibility as a writer and a researcher for t- in TV that you don't overstep the line. And there was one occasion where I, I actually sort of ran away. <laughs> and that was um, when Jerry Glaster died and he was the creator of Secret Army. I was asked by his wife, Joan, to help her get all the actors together from all of his shows down the years to come to the funeral. Oh, right. So... All of the works he'd done over the years, like The Brothers and um, Howard's Way, uh, Secret Army, Cold It's... I had in my little black book of names from Secret <laughs> Army and from other projects, I kind of knew a lot of them. <laughs> so Joan kind of realised this. So I helped by giving all the addresses and phone numbers that I had, and she was able to assemble everyone for the funeral. But I didn't want to go because I thought, this isn't my territory. I had met Jerry twice, yes. but I just did, still didn't feel like I could be there. But myself and wife, we went. And it's one of the weirdest experiences going there with all these people from these shows. And mm. we tried to be as low-key as possible. And we kind of ran away after the ceremony. We'd been asked back to the house for, mm. you know, the, the wake and all that. And right. we just like, it just didn't feel right, you know. Does it have that sort of... It, it it's an actor thing or it's uh, yeah. it, is it just I remember it just, I remember Penn and is Ro- it that imposter syndrome thing I only wrote a book really yes. I didn't know him <laughs> and yeah, I remember right. the director Pennant Roberts he was standing outside the church with Tracy Childs shouting over at me saying Andy are you coming and I'm like yeah <laughs> and thinking in my head no <laughs> wow <laughs> so it would have been lovely to do in a way but it just didn't feel right and I, I'm very much believing in you know if something doesn't feel right then you know, there might be something in that yeah but you're, you haven't got this this thing where you're, you've got this 600 page book and somebody walks up to you and you go that thing on page 500 that you said you don't get that that doesn't happen <laughs> oh you get some crazy reviews that you ignore right one person on okay. on Amazon said about my Tenko book there is nothing new in this volume <laughs> Oh, right. There's a whole shelf of books about Tenko. I mean, it's, it's. I think it's, it's just sometimes really quite nice, really quite nice to have some, that something that's all in one place, though, isn't it? Yeah. That's the beauty of it. I know it's deliberately encyclopedic, wow. and for someone to say that, it was just such such mm. nonsense. I'm like, well, I don't even understand that. <laughs> 
and you and, and so you set up um classic tv press yeah for, for, for the secret army book on we set up our own publishing house because we didn't want to be constrained by other people i didn't want to be constrained on length and the money that other people take from you obviously if they can <laughs> why don't we take the profits ourselves ourselves you know so and so how does that actually work do you have to find a printer and yeah and all this you, kind you of end thing? up doing everything literally, literally do it from from ground zero but i think because i've been used to doing everything on the dvd releases virtually with no help from the company that i was <laughs> other than the technical authoring it was quite second nature to me by then mm-hmm. and so and, and you enjoyed it so much you did another one yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. and we started to venture out into doing others as well. We were going to have a plays strand as well, but we only wow. published one of those. And, right. and in the end, it was just it just became too much work. Anyone who, who's a publisher will tell you that it's it's very a lot of work for very little money. Um, right. And you spend more time admining than yeah. actually writing the books, I presume. And I got a better job as well, and that was actually <laughs> harder. To, to keep things ticking along yeah because yeah. no writers ever make any money at all no. so no it's it no fine well some well, do i'll tell you one thing they are they are lovely and very recommended uh, volumes that's Thank the you. uh, complete secret army i have in front of me here and uh, remembering tenko both by classic tv press if you if you want to seek them out i think there's a there's a beautiful thing really i think uh, television fans particularly i think we grew up at a kind of in a kind of era when everything wasn't available on video and you couldn't see everything at the drop of a uh, netflix pass or whatever and um and so actually the books were what made the series for us and i think people like you going out and writing these things you know to the likes of us you've been a godsend so thank you very much oh thank you that's that's really sweet thanks martin okay take care bye-bye thank you bye thanks once again to andy for agreeing to that interview as i mentioned these days amongst other things andy is a prolific podcaster about all things archive television related and can be heard every month talking to his sister Alex in New Zealand on his World Enough and Time Doctor Who podcast via at World Enough Pod on Twitter and on his A to Z of UK TV drama podcast via at TV Drama Pod on Twitter. Now there's this. While we were preparing this programme, the television world lost one of its more iconic performers in uh, Dame Diana Rigg. Uh, Dame Diana Rigg, a lot of you will know from her two years on The Avengers in the 1960s, becoming the iconic Mrs Emma Peel. And also quite a few of you will know her from her more recent work on Game of Thrones. And she worked in a lot of uh, memorable TV series like the uh, Mrs Bradley Mysteries and, of course, uh, Mother Love, for which she got her BAFTA. So um, she was a very much-loved and 60-year career. That's that's impressive. So um, she's also the mother of uh, Rachel Sterling and, of course, featured as her mother in uh, Detectorists a few years ago. So all in all, one of the greats. And... Um, I was thinking, well, I, I should do some kind of tribute. I mean, we like to think we're topical and current. But um, I was thinking, well, yes, maybe some sort of obit. And then I noticed uh, a friend of mine had written a very beautiful piece about his childhood and when he knew Diana Rigg. And uh, I thought, you know what? I'll just ring him up and ask him if he'll actually read out what it was he was talking about, what it was he'd written. And um, so, without further ado, here's Warren. Here's my little reflection on uh, Diana Rigg. Thank you for giving me some time to put it out. There's a little bit of a personal one. I've entitled it, Where Steve Jumps the Gun and I'm Against Her Wings. 
So, where on earth do I begin? I'll tell you what. Spaghetti bolognese, the deliciously saucy Emma Peel, and sonnets. Well, that's where I will start. In the late 1970s and the early 1980s, my mother became the housekeeper of the local gentry in their manor house, and I would often be roped into helping with washing up at larger dinner parties. As a 12-year-old, it was a little extra pocket money. We often had guests popping their heads into the kitchen to say hello, government ministers, titled socialites, actors such as Jonathan Cecil, and my favourite, Diana Rigg. At that point, she wasn't a dame. Diane and my mother would sit and swap recipes while I sat listening to her exciting stories of exotic international travel and generally piddling around on the stage. I once remember having a food fight with her while she tried to recite sonnets. Every time she dried, I would launch a spoonful of spag bowl at her and in return she'd throw breadsticks at me. We giggled like school kids as my mother made us clear up the mess in the kitchen. Now, at school I learnt the cheeky verse of The boy stood on the burning deck eating red-hot scallops. One fell down his trouser legs and burnt him on the knee. I fired this off with full theatrical flourish, and Diana roared with laughter and replied with this. Mary had a little lamb. Her father shot it dead. Now Mary takes her lamb to school between two hunks of bread. I still have a number of uh, Mary had a little lamb verses I use today. All are very witty. Some are very blue, but all are courtesy of Diana Rigg. I only knew her at that point as James Bond's wife from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I mean, at the age of 12, Shakespeare wasn't, wasn't my thing. It was a bit out of my league. However, Diana did get me into reading sonnets. She was always smiling, always hugging and kissing when we met and was always taking interest in what I was doing. Today, I suppose we call her a lovey. But upon reflection, I found her honest, sincere and thoroughly cheeky. I mean, how many people can say Emma Peel taught them to swear? I discovered the Avengers in the early 1980s when it was repeated on Channel 4, and I asked her about it once. She replied, I laughed from start to finish. It paid the bills and it got me known, and in my line of work you always needed a stage in which to launch from. And to many, though, she will be that icon of the 1960s. To some others, she will be the girl who went from comic book hero to a board-treading stalwart that iconic professional who never failed to deliver an audience-slaying performance. Even now, you can see her on Channel 5's remake of All Creatures Great and Small as the great Mrs Palfrey. There we go, working right up to the final curtain. I've tried not to create a chronological list of her full and varied career. In fact, it's not even scratched the surface, to be fair. If you want to learn more about Diana Rigg, take her name, put it into a search engine, and have a look. Or, likewise... Go into YouTube and investigate what a full and theatrical life she had, always in the limelight, across the great stage and silver screen. Diana Rigg was a true powerhouse of an actor, a legendary name within the acting community and a true professional. But to me, well, she will be that wonderful witty soul who threw breadsticks at me and taught me to say <laughs> a lot. And a lot more colourful descriptive words. A star in the night sky has not just gone out, but we've lost the entire constellation tonight. Mrs Peel, you'll always be needed. Thanks for doing that for us, Warren. 
I think he was in a motorway service station or something. These things are difficult to do. I mean, if we could get you into the, the studio, we'd have done it. But uh, there we go. Anyway, thank you for doing that a lot. Some lovely memories there. I think, I think a lot of uh, Archive TV fans, uh, many of whom are also Avengers fans, uh, feeling the loss of both Dame Diana Rigg and also Honor Blackman this year. The Sons of Time, to TV fans, can be so cruel. And this, hopefully, shows you that we're trying to create a nice, friendly and inclusive environment for your television memories here on Vision on Sound. So if you do have some memories to share, do let us know here at Fab Radio International. And, and you never know, we might end up sharing your thoughts with our audience sometime very soon. And that is just about it for Vision on Sound this time. Next time we're planning on having a bit of a theme of the week as we look into the strange and terrifying world of the remake or the reimagining of classic television series on film, television and wherever they happen to show up. We hope that you've enjoyed travelling along with us. I'd like to thank Warren and, of course, Andy Priestner for their contributions, as well as everyone here at Fab International for helping out this week, and I hope to see you very soon. Take care.